In this episode, the three of us log on to a strange Wi-Fi service that is indecipherable. All we know is it's a review of the Bells of St. John. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the 49 Up podcast. It's James and with me to discuss the first episode of Series 7 Part 2, it's Ian and George. Hello. Hello. Great to have you, have, great to have you guys with us today. Um, so, season seven, season 7, Series 7 Part 2 is kicked off with what I can, what I can surmise as a very epic and interesting th- thriller as the uh, production crew have put it in the bells of st john so what do we think of the uh, episode overall before we go into an in-depth review i really really enjoyed it i can say i was after a long wait well long it sh- shorter than we were used to but still a, a three three month wait it was nice to have it back and it came back in such a big and epic and exciting way and uh, yes, it was very, very, very exciting. It, it, it's sort of what we would expect from a from a series opener, if we can even call it that, because technically it isn't one. Ah, oh, I've, I've um, sort of thoroughly enjoyed it in my uh, hotel room. Yeah, it was, it was. Um, I, I don't know what quite I was um, expecting initially from the series, but um, I was I was pleasantly surprised, and quite a few other people who have been a bit uh, fussy and whatnot over you know recent episodes and whatnot seem to enjoy it as well so that's that's always a positive thing i generally enjoyed it but um it's something that i've found uh, as we're getting as we're going on through the series i found that it's sort of the series seems to get better in my opinion and that since since we've seen the rings of akaten before we've done this review i find that the uh, this has been a great opener but i th- but i think that we're, we're obviously going to get better as we go through the series so uh, we'll uh, try and put our uh, best points to what we what we think of this episode in and then as uh, the listeners will find out in the fir- in the future episodes, I, I generally think it's going to get better and better as as the series goes on. So uh, let's move on to the uh, full review. I'll move on to uh, the doctor bit. So Matt Smith is back for series seven, part two. He's been gone for say, as George said, about three months since uh, the snowman aired. And uh, how how do we think he's changed? Because I mean, his costume's changed slightly since it uh, changed in the snowman, and is uh, he's been reclused to um, what was it? It was Cumbrian twelve oh six, was it in a um, monastery? I thought it was a great opening. I, I love that. And how, when you find out that the title of the episode is purely as a as a little reference to uh, his, his TARDIS ringing, I thought that was fantastic. Sort of a bit like the way they titled Let's Kill Hitler as an episode where the title was pretty much nothing to do with the episode. It was just a little fun title, and they did the exact same thing here. Uh, but, no, I think I think Matt Smith, as, we, as we've said countless times, he, he is the Doctor so much now, and he's just when he comes on screen, you just feel feel his presence and see him, and it's just it's exciting to have him back. He, he is the role now. I think with this opening episode, it, it, it's a uh, as as uh, Stephen Moffat or or any re- like writer in the series would say, it's a jumping on point. And I think with Matt, he's he's great at doing these sorts of roles in the terms of like he's the as the other um, 
the monk said that he was the uh, mad monk in sort of a uh, meddling monk sort of reference i think it may, it may be in the subtext if if uh, you look close enough but um in the way that you'd expect both the doctor and matt smith sort of sort of his sort of general demeanor as being that kind of character that he's reclused himself that, that he had previously reclused himself to victorian england having having lost the ponds but now he's reclused himself to a um to a Cumbrian monastery, Ch- go fascinated over what Clara's become in, in his life and seeing her twice. And now, I- is he going to see her again? And then, obviously, within the next like, 10 minutes that he takes to get back to the police box, he um, he uh, finds out there's a third version in modern day. Yeah, the, the one the one thing this doctor seems to be very um, sort of fond of is um, his companions. He's, he's like every time. He sort of uh, loses them or whatever. It sort of like goes into a sort of solitary sort of existence, which I, I suppose you know, as most people probably would after sort of like a bereavement. But obviously, with the, the doctor, it's a bit more um, sort of like obvious, you know. But um, no, it's 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 still as balmy as ever, which is what I've always loved about Matt Smith. It was it was crazy from the beginning and. You know, it's 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 the one thing I continue sort of like you know to like about him. What do we think of the? I want I want to say new costume. It's sort of a, a more of a modification on what he normally wears. Because I've heard I I personally really like it and think it it's so him. But I've heard other people describe it as Willy Wonka. Yeah. Um. So. The, 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 I do, yeah. Do we do we like it? I I like it. It's it's, it's just obviously that the, the as you said, Willy Wonka. The first the first time I saw the uh, poster with them on the motorcycle smashing through a pane of glass, I I instantly thought that looks so Gene Wilder. And I think have they got this from a bit of a Charlie in the Chocolate Fa- Charlie in the Chocolate Factory feel, or have they just thought? Or they just randomly pull this together and it just happens to look like it, even though so like it, it sort of goes in the Gene Wilder way. That it's got a white shirt, purple uh, jacket, bow tie. It all seems to go that way towards the Gene Wilder one. I, I never really noticed the um the, the Willy Wonka thing really. I mean, I I just absolutely adore the coat. I I really do like that coat. <laughs> you you, what, you couldn't even initially tell from the first few photos that um it was sort of like purple because there was sort of like bit dark but um I, I, I actually quite like um sort of like the color um but yeah because i mean it, the, the some of the the press doctors have sort of like been going a bit with sort of like browns and blacks and things so it's it's nice to have a, mm. a flash of color here and there <laughs> do we think it's going to be retiring the you know the tweed jacket now or do you think this will be an alternate like the blue suit for the 10th doctor or is this a whole new costume that is going to be the regular. I'd have thought it might be an alternative, solely based on what he was wearing in the prequel to Bells of St. John. Because I'm wondering if that took place after the Snowmen, and whether his costume in the Snowmen transitioned in a subtle way into the one he wears in Bells of St. John, or whether... It, it, as you say, it might be an alternative that he just flat, that he just changes into every so often. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I actually know that it, it isn't the last we'll see of um, uh, the tweed jacket because in in uh, some of the photos that have been released from uh, the 50th anniversary, he's wearing both the purple and the tweed. So it, it's it's not going to be retired completely. As you say, it'll be mm. it'll be an alternative, just like the Doctor swapping every you know the tenth Doctor swapping every once in a while. 
Um, yeah. And as, as as James said, you know, in the prequel to um, uh, the Bells and John again, it was in in the tweet. So I don't, I don't think we've seen the last of it. But personally, I'm all in favour of uh, giving it a rest. <laughs> <laughs> Going on what George said about the the, the uh, was I think it was George saying about the Browns and the black sort of thing. I'm thinking with the costume of the Eleventh Doctor, it's almost in a Seventh Doctor vein. That his jacket was white and then it went to dark brown. So I'm wondering whether that was sort of a change to say that it's, it's sort of homaging that with how many people have compared some of the uh, new doctors as a sort of do- seventh doctor, sort of like uh, manipulative, sort of overlording sort of character, and whether that might reflect it in some way. So, Clara Oswin Oswald, the third iteration of the character, first of which we met on uh, Starship Alaska on the Asylum Planet of the Daleks, second time we met uh, in Victorian London uh, as a governess, and now third time it's a nanny in modern London. So, what do we think of Clara? Uh, has, has she lost any of the rapport that she had with the Doctor in the first two appearances? Or do we think she's the same? Or do we think she's better? Or I think there's a, a definite change just because of she is a, a slightly different character to the other two because she knows different things. And um, I think what we get here, though, is because of... I think the Doctor draws attention to it because she seems to have some of the qualities of her other two um, iterations that you know that that's something worth thinking about like she is a nanny she was a governess uh she got really good at computers and in the uh the asylum of the daleks she was really good at operating the uh even though she, i guess the guess that can be explained away as the fact she was a dalek at that point but uh yeah it's going to be interesting to see um where this particular inter- iteration of clara goes just because we um i'm presuming this is the one we're going to be stuck with not stuck with but have <laughs> on our screens for for the next at least half season before we find out more about the other versions of her. So I think throughout yeah. the episode there have been like a, li- a few little seeds that have been planted about her character. One of the most notable ones I think is the Oswin bit because obviously Oswin wasn't her actual like involved name. It was just a as as I read from the line it was a username she came up with came up with uh, as with Oswald and Win put together condensed into a nickname. Well, well, a username, but I'm assuming she might be using that as a nickname. So maybe is so is are we going to like learn how Oswin passes on to being the actual name of um, the one in the of the version in the Starship Alaska, and how the past version has or has that as a middle name, or what or what's going to happen? Hmm. It's 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 all like. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen Moffat has a <laughs> Stephen Moffat sort of like has a habit of creating um, some of these uh, sort of like complex sort of like characters every once in a while. I mean, we had we had sort of like um, the same with with sort of like River Song, never not quite knowing you know what was going on. I mean, the the only difference I think at the moment is that Clara is going to be um, explained away and possibly sooner rather than later. But I, I just generally want to sort of like you know find out what happened i think i think that's sometimes quite a, a good thing if um if you want to stick with the show to see like see how the plot develops or what happens or mm. you know who this person is and all that sort of stuff so from from that point i find her a very sort of like interesting character and i actually get on i get on with her sort of like really well you know she's she's 
a companion that I do sort of like like. I was always a bit half and half with Amy, if I'm honest, but Clara I've taken to quite well. I, I think with mysteries on companions, I think if you have a mystery of a companion, I think, yeah, it's alright to reveal something about them at some point, but I think, uh, as with as you say, with Riversong, I think with Riversong, that, with Series 6, there wasn't just the fact that she was Amy and Rory's daughter, that was just like the part one reveal. The part two reveal was that she was the one that killed the Doctor in that series. So, I mean, there was two reveals of the character, and there's still a, a few, a, I'm assuming, there's still quite a bit that we could still discover about a character, but I'm assuming that, but uh, it's like translate, transfer that to Clara's character. Is that, yeah, we're sh- assuming we're going to get an explanation as to how she's existing at three points in time. But I, it would also be good if she is, because she's confirmed to be carrying on into Series 8, that she'd have a bit more mystery about her, or, or whether it's just going to be just completely after that, it's just going to be completely. Um, uh, character uh, just drama rather than just like exploring her past or secrets or whatever I, th- I think you've got to be careful sometimes about taking things um, like too far I mean there's still questions from season 5 that haven't been answered and you know, <laughs> yeah. it, it's in some ways it's, it's fine to keep the mystery for a while but drag it out too long and people lose interest in whatever it was <laughs> the first time round um, you know so I'm, I'm hoping they don't take it <laughs> too too long <laughs> I'm so always so torn with um, Stephen, like because I love his writing and he, I think he's brilliant. But I and I'm never, I don't know when to doubt him or not because I'm not sure. Like either he's going to be absolutely amazingly brilliant and he's going to bring all the sort of semi loose ends together at some point before he leaves the show and he's playing a massive long game, or there's the, what a lot of people are saying, which is that he's just going to hope everyone forgets about these plot points. And I'm so divided because I just. Because of how much respect I have for him and how much I love his writing, I just I, I think he could easily pull off bringing all the plot threads together. Uh, so, yeah, I, it's uh, it's puzzling. It is puzzling indeed. It's, although with playing a long game, I'm just not uh, as, as 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 Ian said. I'm just wondering whether at some point they'll will get bored of like uh, like get bored of having to wait so long to find out who blew up the TARDIS, who was the voice in the TARDIS, blah, 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 like, what, 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 it's like we get to the end of Series 8 and like, oh, so that happened at when, exactly? It's like, oh, we need a big, long, two-minute flashback to remember, oh, that's what that's connected to, it's like, and why didn't we find that out, like, two series ago, or something like that? So within the episode, we had the introduction of another monster, or more like a robot, uh, to the Doctor Who uh, menagerie, and um, in the form of the Spoonheads, or as they were also referred to uh, as servers. So, um, yeah, I think rather than being a big focus of the episode, they were sort of more like the drones, sort of like the operating uh, robots, less than the actual menace behind whatever Mm. was going on. Uh, and, and to be honest, we get actually very little information about them, apart from the fact that that they can essentially download humans into this matrix web thing. Yeah. Uh, again, we don't get very much information on the technology behind any of this or why it's actually happening. Uh, probably intentionally so, though. So, yeah, I think they were... Um, 
sort of they had they they fit in very well with the story and i thought they were very um that the the rotation of the head was quite was quite uh and creepy and yeah i think i think that's um I don't necessarily think they're going to be necessarily a fan favorite, <laughs> but I think they, they they served their purpose, and I yeah. think they yeah they added to the sort of modern feel to the story. Yeah, I, I, um, as far as them the the spoonhead go, I mean they they have a similarity to um, the nodes in the turning head sort of aspect, I suppose. Mm. But um, I, I I actually I I was worried when obviously because by the name alone and looking at that sort of like very early picture, it was like it literally has a spoon for a head. <laughs> But, but when when they actually sort of were shown in the episode, it actually worked a lot better than I thought um, it would do. Mm. And you know, I mean, the the bodies were basic, and as you say, they they they're not sort of like a monster as they were. They're more uh, the tool, yeah. um, sort of like behind it. But in it's it sort of like reminds me certainly when by you know the end of the episode when you find out who's behind it, it sort of does remind me of hmm, robot servants being used. <laughs> Mm, sounds familiar. <laughs> it's it, 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 I can't remember what podcast it was, but what's but it was like something that, that that they mentioned that the when the spoonheads deactivated their disguise, that the the uh, skeletal like machine thing looked a lot like the insides of the Yeti. I'm wondering how much they're going to play into this. Like this is get, going off that, that <laughs> the point a bit, but like they they've got the great intelligence, they're using it, they're sort of reinventing it for this season. Is this the kind of thing, the fact that the Spoonheads could be linked to the Yeti, is that going to be like a huge plot point or more so is it like a nod for the fans? Because if you, if I think if they dwell too much on the past of the great intelligence and all that, they're going to alienate new viewers. Also, that's not a story you can actually watch either. So unless you've actually gone out and mm. found ways to know what happened, it's, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if they're going to use that more, more sort of passively than than actively i think if they use that way it's more of a just a nod really because if if anyone who's seen it or knows of it or of the older fans and they'll say oh that looks just like blah 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 blah. it's like okay we'll carry on with the rest of the story i don't really need to dwell on that it's like with the newer viewers that if anyone's like interested in saying that if they know an older fan and they think uh, and then they hear from the older fans say, "Oh, that looks like the Yeti." It's like, "What's the Yeti?" It's like, "Oh, this is thing that there was uh, with the Great Intelligence in uh, some of the old pa- Patrick Chatton episodes." It's like, "Oh, I might check that out." As a what, what's left of them? It's like I think it's more of a just like a way for the for for anyone who wants to just get reminded or actually want to in- investigate it more that they want to try it at some point. So the real intelligence uh, behind, well, not the real intelligence, because uh, but <laughs> the, the the next in command, as it were, behind this uh, after the spoonheads was Miss Kislet, who uh, in, initially seemed to be the the power and brains behind whatever operation was going on. But as we know by the end of the episode, most certainly wasn't. Uh, and yeah, but, but uh, she uh, had the ability to do one of the one of the more ingenious things of the episode, I thought, which was directly influence people's brains to control. Uh, I think they referred to it as hacking, mm. but to control their emotions and abilities. And I thought this was a very good idea, and that they, I, I almost wish they developed it further because I think it, it worked really. It was a really interesting concept. But 
no, I think I think she was portrayed really well, and you know, was menacing enough. And uh, yeah, it, it's it was one of those characters that you, you I don't think really anyone saw what was coming right at the end when she became when she reverted back to the state of a child. It's like one of those one of those characters that you you think from what from what she's done through like eighty percent of the episode, she's been a mature, sophisticated, articulate, scheming uh, sort of boss slash henchwoman to what is a client halfway through and then it's obviously the great intelligence later that that she because that it's this it's this uh, impressive performance from her being from from that it back into what what i'd assume is probably maybe a f- two or three or four or five year old child which is quite both amazing in her ability but also quite chilling in how to present a character like that and initially when i um watched the episodes um in, in that sort of like hotel, I sort of didn't immediately click uh, what what's why she was all of a sudden sort of like younger. It wasn't until the sort of like second watching that I thought, ah oh, well, you know, she's obviously been sort of like uh, manipulated since she was you know very sort of like young. Whereas yeah. all these other people that sort of like came into the company were sort of like taken over if they were just like visiting to fix a toilet or something. Um, well, uh, sorry, sorry, no, carry on. No, I was going to say, it mirrors uh, somewhat the plot from uh, The Snowmen, how, you know, Richard E. Grant's character got manipulated from a very young age by the great intelligence, and in some ways, it's very similar to that. Mm. Yeah, and and I mean, it's, it's been, you know, said a couple of times already, but, you know, Celia Emery, you know, sort of brilliant sort of, uh, um, you know, sort of actress, and I mean, I, I like her in sort of like most things, so it was great to see her in this, and she, she really played the part very well I find that it's interesting like when when, like more sort of well-known actors appear in Doctor Who they it's often for just one or maybe a two or two episodes if it is two parts they they really go for it because they don't often get them the biggest amount of screen time to do anything with but whenever you get these guest stars I just love how they they really get into it you can tell they're really enjoying it and it's it's brilliant to watch like I think it's that whole mentality that like they're on Doctor Who this is a big deal, and I think everyone who sort of comes to the show doesn't really doesn't just treat it as a job. It seems to be like they they really enjoy this. Yeah, it's it's sort of funny how um, back in uh, you know JNT sort of days, he was always plumbing to get um, well recognised faces from you know variety shows and all that sort of thing. But now it's rather than uh, the production team going out to find actors, you you find that the actors want to just be a part of Doctor Who and probably get in touch with them you know I mean how Eccleston sort of like mm, came about yeah. so I, I just think it's great to have something that has that sort of appeal to actors to the point where the, you know they want to be in it I mean who, who would have thought you know you'd have had Ian McKellen in, in something like or even John Hurt you know it's it's really sort of quite you know satisfying to be <laughs> part of you know a fan of something that oh. you know, so many people are absolutely you know clamouring over to get on uh, the program, or even in the production side, with you having Peter Jackson wanting to di- to direct an episode of it, mm. which is very uh, exciting. In terms of production values for this um, episode, I think probably the highest, well, well, in my opinion, probably the highest, pr- the highest va- vis- the highest production valued. Vi- I can't speak now. The the scene with the highest production values in terms of visuals, I think, is the airplane scene, if if you get what I mean. Because I think it it's epic, it's stunning, it's very well shot. 
it's funny it's it's basically all the all the many things you'd expect from Doctor and I, I, and people keep thinking it's out of place I personally don't think it's out of place I think it's just a very well placed piece of action slash comedy in a way no, I, don't, I don't think it's out of place at all I think it's brilliant how it sort of shows up and then about probably about 40 50 seconds later it's over it's just the such a quick thing it's like, oh yeah we're, we're just gonna we're just gonna fly a plane for a second and uh no it's, i mean i yeah i don't think it's out of place i could imagine a lot of um past doctors uh doing do, seeing a plane and thinking oh i'll just pop on board and and stop it from crashing i don't think necessarily that's gonna i didn't it didn't seem gimmicky at that i think this it seems to be a concept that's thrown around a lot in the recent season the whole big budget let's do this big and amazing attitude is interpreted by a lot of people it seems to be like cheesy and over the top which is really unfortunate because it's not the entire uh entire yeah. uh, i mean it's not the desired uh, reaction but uh yeah I mean, one one thing i noticed about the the airplane scene again this this comes from uh watching it it there's a difference i think uh, between watching it at home and focusing on something 100% and just sort of like watching something out of place and sort of like in 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 passing um but i i originally thought well hang on what, what on earth are they doing on on the airplane but that's because i didn't see or really clock you know the the one you know in the sky that was you know heading straight for the town but you know it was something <laughs> i picked up on the second sort of like watch in that sense you know it made absolutely perfect sense it, it's it's a shame that um because it was very almost a complete shot between them going in round out and straight into the plane it was yeah. just a shame there was that one slight jar i think wasn't there yeah. um I, I, sort of like where they focused on the doctor rather yeah. than carrying on through yeah. but it, it, it was very sort of like cleverly done i think yeah it, it was obviously trying to give the effect of a continuous shot but obviously it couldn't physically be done because obviously they had to go from the location into the TARDIS, round the TARDIS, out of the TARDIS door, into the plane. So I'm so obviously though you couldn't do that physically because I mean as in you need to do the shot first shot of them running in, then they'd have to do the entire circulate circular shot of the going around the TARDIS console, then going to the door, and then they'd have to do a separate shot of them going out of the door into the plane set. So so I, I mean I think from what from what they did, I think them running into the TARDIS and then actually so like when they're a few feet away from the door just about to leave the leave the plane I think that is the best the the, the best f part fluid the best part that flows the best the best part that the part that flows the best in in terms of like the editing and then when it obviously gets to where Clara goes in front of the camera to go towards the door that's obviously where I think that's where the, it's most evident that, there, that there's a change in between TARDIS door between the main TARDIS set and this door that leads onto the uh, plane set itself yeah so what we think of the, um, as well as that, that set piece, there's also the set piece of the quadrocycle. So what do we think of the quadrocycle? It was mad and ridiculous, but again, <laughs> I, I just, I, I loved it. I thought this is, this is Doctor Who. Well, yeah, and then the, the other thing is, of course, you don't even have to see it. It's just mentioned in passing and it's just a bit of, bit of fun and whatnot. <laughs> so it's, it's entertaining. That was the quickest segment we've ever done. <laughs> Um, this episode is notable for being like I think like as like the first major like London set episode in a quite a while. 
Because, I mean, with Amy, we've had a lot of, like, Ledworth and stuff like that. So I think we've, like, had a major return to a setting in London. And what what do we think of, like, w- what we can see of London and how it's presented with the direction in this episode? I think because of the long break we've had since they've used London, it, it has completely reinvigorated the environment. Because with series one to four, we very much... If it was London, you think, oh, good old London, we're back here. It felt safe and cosy and you sort of knew it. But because we've had two and a half seasons without London, it's suddenly been given this vibrancy and this freshness, which is which is really good. The fact that we're able to do that just by leaving a place for a bit, uh, which is which is good. So hopefully they, they continue this lovely, vibrant feel. I thought it was, it was really good to see it um, filmed how it was. And you really felt like they had used it as much as possible. Uh, you know, as opposed to trying, rather than trying to use bits of Cardiff to look like London, I think they really, I, I you truly believe they really were there, and they they showcase a lot of the um, a lot of the iconic imagery from the city as well, and the fact that they use the Shard as the main headquarters for the for the uh, operation, if you want to call it that. Uh, I thought that was very very yeah. clever sort of marketing for the new building. Well, that's it, exactly. It's, it's practically only completed, you know, so, so long ago, and already it's uh, got um, some evil people living at the top. But um, <laughs> it's what, what I always um, find about uh, these London ones is because I, I go down to London quite a fair bit, so I, I recognise things like the Mall and, um, you know, obviously everyone knows Big Ben. But um, the, the weird thing about the Shard is, um, I, I know it's all down to perspective and things but when you're on the ground looking up it doesn't look very tall at all in fact it looks quite short but it's only on the skyline where it looks absolutely massive so it's and i mean and that was sort of like came through you know in the way it was shot on the uh, the doctor doctor who thing because it, it did show um it as being absolutely dominating sort of like the london skyline uh, and yes yeah. As I say up close, it's always felt really small to me. So, if, but um, no, it it, it showed off um, London rather rather nicely. So that's and then let's face it, yeah, having been to London, it's not all nice. <laughs> <laughs> how tall? Uh, how tall is it? Because I'm not. I don't. Supposedly, it's the tallest skyscraper in Europe, isn't I, it? Now I can't remember. It's and I, I know it's I know it's tall. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I know the tallest buildings at the moment is uh, the really tall building in um, Dubai, Dubai, and then I think the CN Tower yeah. is still quite tall. But I don't know if the Shard's gone above CN or whether it's lower. Yeah. But um, it's, I, I, I just I, looked it up; it's just under a thousand feet. So whatever that is, mm. <laughs> something. It's tall. It's tall, as Ian said. <laughs> uh, question: um, Considering the coming soon trailer at the end of the snowman and this episode has series 7 part 2 sort of got a bit more of a sort of CPU-esque sort of reduced saturation look to it because to me from the trailer and from uh, the Bells of St. John some of the scenes in like outdoors in like, like the London sunshine and like that seems a bit more sort of as I said, sort of sepia-esque, sort of the sort of the saturation's been reduced and this contrast's been increased. I don't know why, but it seems to look that way to me. I th- well, I don't know whether that's just um, um, sort of like. It, I mean, it might all be to do with things like uh, the fact that it's a very sort of like mechanical sort of um, sort of you know Wi-Fi and technological sort of thing. Uh, so whether or not they decide to sort of like use a, a very much grey 
sort of like palette make things sort of like dull and London-esque yeah. as it were uh, and like if you compare it to you know some some other episodes they're absolutely bursting with colour and, and things so it, it makes sort of like mm. um, some nice contrast I think some sometimes to have something mm. that's quite dull and dark to something that's sort of like very vibrant um, and I, th- I think you know, in episodes you know to come, I'm sure we'll probably see quite a fair bit of uh, both, probably. Well, we've already seen it in Akaten. I mean, that yeah, was yeah. so bright and vibrant and very orange and red. But I, I definitely agree. Like yeah. I found in um, Saint John, it was the, they used blue an awful lot. I think the blue colours were like, especially inside yeah. the shard, it was very almost abnormally blue. And it was, I thought, this is it wasn't bad it was it, it was it was good like i thought it was it, it got across this very um clinical and sort of futury but sort of not not necessarily sort of future tech but sort of very modern i think blue is quite a modern color to represent technology i i think i think with some of the uh some of the stuff inside the shard and all that and, and also with the representation of the wi-fi is you notice that when it went to the sort of like the Wi-Fi representation of the Earth, where it was just like black black globe with blue silhouetted uh, um, uh, land masses, and then it was all, all like the Wi-Fi connections of the streams of red light, and then all of the uh, uh, like uh, tabletop keyboards in or in the offices in the Shard were all sort of like red outlined. It's like this sort of like gave it a bit more of a semiotic feel of evil in terms of how it, how it was using red in a lot of it. And how how it was representing the uh, the Wi-Fi uh, infiltration? It was all a bit Tron, really, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. In a way, it was. Yeah. Because say about the blue is that, as you're saying, with all clinical and stuff. But I mean, it also sort of links to how uh, we get the big, the big blue uh, Richard E. Grant head <laughs> in the Great Intelligence at the end. Is is this setting up? I mean, I I certainly think it, it probably is setting up a, a, a semi-series arc where the Great Intelligence is going to be uh, somewhat related to the Silence of the Fields of Trends lore, all that. Because it seems like they're definitely building this up to be more than well, we, as we it's been in two now, more than just a one-off, um, a one-off appearance for the for the as a sort of heart back to the to the classic era. It seems like this is going to be a, a proper decent. Uh, influence on some form of the plot i i, I theorize possibly and it, i've already been proved wrong that every episode on this half season was going to be um influenced by <laughs> the great intelligence in some way but he wasn't mentioned at all in um in yeah. akaten so it kind of debunks that all... whether we'll hear about him again until the season finale or even the 50th anniversary remains to be seen but i i'm i'm wondering if you you know how you have interpreted his presence. Well, I, I think a link with episode two is with with, with the great intelligence in episode one. It was obviously he said that he was absorbing the the uh, like the the knowledge and the memories of the people that had been in the in the matrix web. And then you go to Rings of Akaten, and the god was absorbing the memories and experiences of the people that it was sac- that, were, that were sacrificed to it. So I wonder whether there's a bit of a link there or the not. God could be imagine that'd be interesting <laughs> if the god was the great intelligence in like a really advanced form. Yeah. Or or like or, or like the great intelligence is like 
is a, is, a, is a species, and that's obviously one form of this species. Is it how? Or maybe if that would be so, then that would mean that the sun in '42 was a was a member of the Great Intelligence. Well, the thing the thing with the Great Intelligence is um, it's it's at its heart, you know, based on original series stuff, it was always uh, sort of like disembodied entity that sort of like hangs around space and and um, you know, and it's uh, it it's it seems to take hosts more than than anything. Um, yeah, that, that was certainly sort of like the case with sort of like abominable yeah. snowmen, and uh, I can't really remember the web of fear, well, but I think it takes over a few people in that yeah. as well. Because it's, I mean, it was it was covered in sort of like the snowmen about how it wants. Um, yeah. essentially human form you know or if it, more than anything I think it just wants some kind of body it wanted a body to it? exist in hmm? yeah it, w- it wanted a body to exist in because it, it, it I'm assuming it was in some sort, sort of pur- it was in some sort of purgatory just existing as a consciousness and obviously uh, which is actually quite ironic with the time lords because if you think back to the end of time they wanted to become consciousness and i'm assuming if the great intelligence is a form of consciousness that they want to have bodies that it's like the the time lords became reverse great intelligence in a way at the end of the time war. I mean, the, the thing with the thing with um the great intelligence in, indeed quite a few other sort of like doctor who monsters is it's it's not so much um it's it, arguably, it's not canon if it's not on TV. If some what some people say, but <laughs> generally, um, that they have tried to expand on some of these things in the novels and books and things. And and the Great Intelligence was classed, I think, as one of the the great old ones and things like that. And you've got a connection to the um, oh that bloke that does Cthulhu and all all them lot. Um, I've forgotten the bloke's uh, name, but it's um, you know there's I've forgotten his name. As that's well. often been sort of like connected um, with sort of like Doctor Who things but the problem is with these novels um, again it's you know do do you take them as legit or will people just say eh, no get rid of that idea and carry on with something else but um, it's, it's interesting you know to sort of think yeah. uh, if, if you know some of these books were actually yeah. you know a better sort of um, yeah Character, as it were, than than what yeah. they might do on on television. But I, to be honest, I'm 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 st- I'm intrigued to see how, where they go with this. Because in in terms of timeline, yeah. you've got uh, the snowmen, then you've got the abominable snowmen and yeah. the web of fear, the and web then of fear. you've got Bell St. John. Um, so it's it's um, to, to sort of like look at it in in that sort of order. You've got you've gone from snowmen to yeti, and then to sort of like technological things. So it's all like changing its tact every once, yeah. you know, once every few years to you know what what sort of yeah. servants he needs and how. It, you know, they they keep on evolving. So the the only thing yeah. that's constant, of it's, course, yeah. is the intelligence itself. So it, this is why yeah. it doesn't surprise me if we didn't see things like Yeti return, because um, he might have moved mm. on from, you know, that sort of thing. The whole purpose of the the Yeti was yeah. it was it was because he was in the Himalayas. It suited his purposes. They had no place in the underground whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> it was just convenient because <laughs> one happened to be knocking around, so he could create a new 
breed of yetis from this mm. one that survived. I'd assume that with the, with this evolution, as you say, I think it would be it would it would make sense to in, in the timeline to say that. Um, the technology that made the Yetis would have been streamlined as 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 technology streamlined into becoming Wi-Fi to say that these base stations were a more sli- a slimmer version of the of the Yeti uh, uh, skeleton. Right, as we round off our review of the Bells of Saint John, we've got two little points that we want to discuss about. Um, what what we think is coming up? I mean, I mean the leaf, the the, the bit about the leaf, uh, we sort of discussed in uh, next week's episode that we've pre-recorded. But I think we've got two things. One is who's the mysterious woman who get in the shop that gave Clara the number to the TARDIS, and also it, w- as we discussed about how the leaves were in her book that they were different. It's like, are we going to get more um, exposition on what her what the leaves in her book are in Clara's book? Well, I thought someone was going to say something there. Or should I elaborate more? Yeah, you go first, you want. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I think as as you and I, as you and I George discussed last week where the where the leaves were different. I'm assuming that was the big red leaf on page 1 when we saw it uh, in Rings of Akaten, or was it another page inside the book that was obviously a different leaf it, it, it does she have more than one leaf in the book and what what what, what do we think's going to come of that is it, is it still going to be a metaphor for her character or what i have a feeling the the different leaves is purely a production error like i've i've seen it written about online <laughs> and it, it, i if there if we're meant to if people are meant to somehow notice that the leaves are different and that's going to be a huge plot point it's a very odd way of writing i will say to make a huge fuss about this leaf when it's a different leaf to the one we've already been introduced to um i do like the idea of the leaf metaphor i'm just i'm not, I'm not particularly sold on the fact though that this is two different leaves and she had two of them no i, I, I think i agree it's, it's i think it's probably just supposed to be one leaf that um someone uh cocked up on <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we're, 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 for, for the moment we're putting it down to a production in, like, in, in about in a few months time we could be having Kicking to having ourselves. to greatly change our opinions but yeah. <laughs> so who do we think is the mysterious woman who gave Clara the number to the TARDIS, TARDIS um, bo- uh, phone it's Sally Sparrow <laughs> I'm, I'm convinced because who People have said like, oh, it's Rose, and that it can't be Rose. She doesn't exist in this world anymore. Uh, I I doubt it's River. Why would River have a shop? <laughs> Amy's Amy's dead. It could be Martha because Martha at least has his number. But I, again, don't know what Martha's doing in a shop. Ooh. Sally's the only past person who knows the Doctor I... and has worked in a shop, or at least owns a shop I... now. But then again, she doesn't necessarily have his phone number. Yeah. I have a theory now after what you've said. We know that the book that the the kid that one of the kids that Clara was uh, babysitting was written by Amelia Williams. Yes. And didn't the didn't the woman didn't didn't Clara say that the woman that gave her the number ran a bookshop? Just a shop. Yeah. Well, well, just a shop. If uh, uh, yeah. Well, I'm just thinking if it's a bookshop, maybe. Um, Amy left the num uh, a pe- left his number on a piece of paper inside that specific book that went to that specific shop that Clara picked it up at. 
It's it, it's really it's probably it's not to your shows, he's probably I mean, throwing it's the comment theory. in there just to make people have the exact conversation we're having now. Um, because I I don't know if it's going to be hugely important. I think it's it's a nice little nod. I Possibly. just think. I don't know. I feel like no past companion of modern or even arguably classic series, without it, it, could could easily do it if, unless it, with any real explanation. I mean, you could say, oh, it's it's Ace because Ace worked at the shop or something. It's like, or you know, it doesn't. It could be anyone really because we don't. We have no real context except this person is living in this time period yeah. and in a shop. Well, I'd have to assume that it would have to be explained, or else that it won't make any sense with how the hell she had the number. I, I'm just going to be boring and probably say it's River. It, it doesn't necessarily have to <laughs> own the shop. Maybe she just posed as someone owning yeah. it, you know, is working there just for the sake of giving the number. But, I, yeah. you know, I, but what, is, uh, if it just, it, it, why would this person look at this w- girl, young lady, who she'd never, ever met before and just go oh I'm going to give her the number of the most brilliant man in the universe it just seems like there's probably going to be some kind of high like timey-wimey thing going on whether like Clara's just given the number to herself mm, that's a possibility that's always a possibility like, like that's an old version of another version older yeah the older incarnation of another version of Clara as we know there's many versions of Clara has given the number to herself or <laughs> She, it's the same version of Clara, and she knows she's got to get the number because it's one of those timey-wimey loopy things. I just think there's there's got to be some reason why she gets the number because I I don't know why what what's River got the uh, she's got nothing better to do than sit in a shop and just give out numbers to people. It just, well, I don't know. Unless unless it's something that happens in the future that makes River have to go back to give her the number to actually cause the chain of events. We shall see though. It would be great if that becomes a because it is because it is time travel. Yeah. So uh, to wrap, to complete our review of the Bells of Saint John, what would we rate this episode out of ten? Nine. Um, I'm I'm probably going to go with eight. You'll you'll probably find I'm always the one that will mark things down just in case something better comes in. <laughs> That's I'll I'll struggle to give anything a ten, you know, because it's, it's going to be difficult to think like yeah yeah. I just, all I know is I can rate it relative to what else we've seen this season, and I I liked it more than Akaten, but yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm I'm not I'm not saying this about Dwells uh, and John, but I'm sure just because the Ice Warriors are going to be in it, I'm gonna, just going to vote Cold War as ten just because they're in it, but. Uh, <laughs> But for Bells of St. John, just because I liked Rick, Rin, Rings of Akaten that little bit more, and I think I said 8.5 when we recorded that podcast, so I think I'm going to give Bells of St. John an 8 fight Ian. Just because I really liked it, but I mean, as in, well, it wasn't completely perfect, and I just think that, obviously, because I put Rings of Akaten 8.5, and I like that slightly more, I'll put it as 8. Alright then. So that was our review of the Bells of St. John. Well, that was the Bells of St. John review on the episode 14 of the 49 Up podcast. Coming up next week, we'll see what happens when the Doctor takes Clara to her first alien planet in the Rings of Akaten. So I, Ian and George will return again next week for more Series 7 Part 2. So for me, James, this is goodbye. And me, Ian, this is goodbye. And me, George, this is goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye. Farewell. (laughs) 